Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. In the first part of this episode, we discuss the beginning of my father's trial for the bombs and weapons that the police found in our home, as well as my involvement in helping him file over 90 motions throughout the process. In this part of the episode, we will discuss his final sentence, my reaction, as well as a rather heated conversation between the detectives on Alyssa's case and my father after he was sentenced. But let's jump right back into it with the FBI's official statement about my father's guilty plea. And on April 1st, 2010, the FBI puts out a statement titled, Michael Turney pleads guilty to possessing 26 pipe bombs. And that statement reads, Michael Roy Turney, 62, pleaded to the unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices, a felony offense, in federal district court in Phoenix. Turney admitted that he illegally possessed 26 pipe bombs discovered last year during a search of his Phoenix home in connection with a Phoenix police investigation into the 2001 disappearance of Turney's stepdaughter, Alyssa Turney. As a result of this prosecution, a dangerous man is off the streets. His self-built supply of bombs had the potential for catastrophic consequences, said Dennis K. Burke, U.S. Attorney for the District of Arizona. I applaud the work of the ATF, FBI, and the Phoenix Police for their excellent investigation while removing these explosive devices safely from the neighborhood. A conviction for unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices carries a maximum penalty of 10 years, a $250,000 fine, or both. In determining an actual sentence, Judge Susan Bolton will consult the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, which provides recommended sentencing ranges. The judge, however, is not bound by those guidelines in determining a sentence. Sentencing is set before Judge Bolton on June 21, 2010. And due to my father pleading guilty, there was no jury trial. And Judge Susan Bolton warns my father about the consequences of pleading guilty. Quote, In this plea agreement, you agreed to give up any right to appeal from this court to a higher court, a court of appeals. You also agreed to give up the rights you would have after conviction and appeal, even after conviction without an appeal, to try to come back to this court in the future to collaterally attack the validity of the conviction that will result from pleading guilty. She goes on to explain how this sentence will be based on a variety of factors, including past criminal history, in which my father had none, sentencing guidelines, offense level, etc., and the only guarantee is that he will not get more than 10 years in prison for the charge he is pleading guilty to. On June 3, 2010, my father files another motion, this time asking the court to adjust the sentencing guidelines, claiming that there were not 26 incendiary devices found in the home, but actually 18, stating, quote, the defendant believes that the government erred in calculating the number of assembled with purpose of destructive devices, firearms, as 26 rather than 18, reducing the offense level from 26 to 24, before three levels downward departure to 21, or 37 to 46 months. 
where with one additional level of downward departure under characteristics of defendant, unique and unusual medical needs to offense level 20 or 33 to 41 months would be fair and reasonable in the best interest of justice to avoid a miscarriage of justice. I know that was a lot of talks of levels and months, but essentially he's trying to reduce his sentence, saying that really he should only get 33 to 41 months in jail or else it will definitely be a miscarriage of justice. He goes on to argue that basically because of the way that the pipe bombs were grouped together, that these bundles should be considered one device as opposed to being counted as separate devices as they currently were. This document is a total of 41 pages, and the rest is really just him talking about his prison conditions, how his advisory council isn't helping him, and how the court is legally required to consider his serious medical conditions while sentencing. He also argues that he is clearly unable to represent himself and states that the court should have appointed him a new attorney long ago, instead of allowing his original public defender to remain as an advisory counsel. He also included a slew of letters from friends and family establishing his character. Because of this request, the June sentencing was rescheduled in order to reevaluate my father for competency to represent himself. And on August 10th, 2010, my father files a motion to withdraw his plea of guilty. It's another long and rambling document, but essentially, he argues that his motion for Jeffrey Williams to be removed from the case and to have new counsel appointed should have been granted. And despite Judge Bolton repeatedly reminding my father that Mr. Williams was in no way obligated to take action on his case, but was retained as an advisory counsel that would be available for questions, my father continues to argue that Mr. Williams was not proactive in taking steps to best defend my father in court. This motion to withdraw his plea of guilty was denied. So the sentencing hearing was rescheduled for August 13, 2010. During the investigation of Alyssa's disappearance, the Phoenix Police Department consulted with two professionals. The first was forensic psychologist Erin Nelson, who you might remember as Erin Spears. She was actually there the day of the raid. The second was forensic psychiatrist Stephen Pitt, who was also there the day of the raid. It appears that the court actually used these same two professionals to consult in my father's court case. The reason they were consulted was to determine the level of dangerousness my father had if he were to return to the community. And these professionals provided the following statement. Upon extensive review of the defendant's history, his mental health records, investigative reports, along with other materials, they concluded that prior to his arrest, he presented a high risk for engaging in violent and dangerous behavior, and that since that time, the risk factors have actually increased. They said that as a result, my father poses a high risk in future acts of dangerousness and violent behavior. Their conclusion confirms that my father continues to be a danger to the community. But this particular sentencing hearing begins with my father stating that this entire process has been sentencing entrapment, and he argues that he was led to believe that the maximum sentence was closer to five years, not ten, and that he would not have pled guilty had he known this. 
The court argues that all of this was explained to him back in March, and that he agreed that he was healthy and aware of the situation. U.S. Prosecutor Mr. Morrissey then goes into my father's aptitude for future dangerousness, and they call Dr. Aaron Nelson to the stand. Dr. Nelson is asked to explain her medical background and what qualifies her as an expert. She lists off a ton of experience, one of the most interesting being that she was a research director for the Columbine Psychiatric Autopsy Project, meaning that she worked on the Columbine shooting. They brought this up specifically to highlight the point that she didn't need to physically interview the person in order to make a determination of what they could have been thinking. And like I mentioned before, essentially what she does is establish that she believes that my father is dangerous based on a number of factors that we've already discussed thus far. And she says, quote, In assessing risk for dangerousness, you look at both risk factors and protective factors. And it's the cumulative weight of that information that evaluates risk. In this case, we have somebody who has a long history of externalizing blame, perceived injustices, and feeling that groups have conspired against him. And from where Mr. Turney sits, in fact, it would feel as if that actually played out. Prior, he had no criminal history. Now he is in his current situation, and the totality of that information would actually exponentially increase the risk for retaliation. Coupled with now, there are more targets for his anger. Mr. Morrissey goes on to ask if she believes that my father's actions were just venting. And she responds, Sometimes in therapy, someone is asked to write things down to express or vent. That is not what happened here in Mr. Turney's case. As I said earlier, he did not want to just vent or write fiction to express concern. He was engaged in behaviors of surveilling people, other people. He has engaged in behavior of surveilling his own family. He has written, as I said, extensively about violence and then gathered weapons as a means to carry out that violence. He has documented his intent and explained in a post-mortem manner how and why he engaged in mass or his intent to engage in mass violence. That is not venting. After Mr. Morrissey asks his questions, my father then has a chance to cross-examine this witness. And it's a lengthy cross-examination. My father asks Dr. Nelson to explain each and every risk factor she has gathered on him. Most questions end in an objection by the prosecution and result in my father having to move on to the next question. One example is, my father presents the risk factor of makes inappropriate comments and asks Dr. Nelson, what would you consider to be an inappropriate comment? She responds, there are, in the writings and references that I reviewed, there were many things that I would consider inappropriate, not the least of which is threatening to commit mass murder. There is also significant references that are clinically inappropriate in terms of your relationship with your daughter, in terms of behavior contracts and surveillance equipment in your home, surveilling your family members, discussing that, discussing your daughter on audio files that I heard. There are many inappropriate comments. My father then asks Dr. Nelson, Doctor, have you ever been wrong on one of your assessments? She responds, I'm sure I could have been wrong in the past. To which my father asks, could you be wrong now? And Dr. Nelson responds, What I'm offering right now is my opinion to a reasonable degree of psychological probability. 
I believe this to be the case. I believe there is a strong risk for future violence based on your history and patterns and behavior. I can't say with a 100% certainty that you will commit a violent crime in the future. I can say that based on all my training and expertise, that I believe the risk is high. My father's next question is, Now, just to lay out the foundation, how would that make a difference between, let's say, I went to jail for five years or I went to jail for 10 years and got out? What's the difference in the risk factor? Does it increase or decrease that I will potentially do violence? To which Dr. Nelson responds, I believe that in a shorter period that you mentioned that the time is that you would still have a very strong likelihood of violence based on your age, based on your patterns, based on your history. Based on that, the few things that I believe that were really helping you to not commit a violent crime so far, or at least to my knowledge to have not committed a violent crime so far, what was helping you was your stable residence and your income, and those things are no longer there for you. And in fact, while those things are no longer there, now there is the added fuel to that anger and rage and feelings of being conspired against. So I think that a five-year period would not be sufficient to diminish that. Judge Susan Bolton actually interrupts here, and she says, Do you think that Mr. Turney could be counseled and treated as such that he could eliminate his risk factors? To which Dr. Nelson responds, Some of your risk factors may be amendable to treatment and intervention. But in your case, the long-standing personality traits that someone has are very difficult to treat. Based on the material that I reviewed, including, in particular, Mr. Turney's own writings, it is apparent that he holds grudges for an extremely protracted period of time, dating back to the early 70s. There are things that are still relevant that he made reference to today. In my opinion, that indicates the significant likelihood that it would continue into the future. I am very concerned about the potential for future violence in Mr. Turney's case. The prosecution then calls ATF agent Bettendorf to the stand. He assisted in the removal of the explosives from our home, and he is questioned as to the lethality of the bombs that he found. He explains that most pipe bombs are constructed using an outer shell, some type of gunpowder, and a fuse with the outer shell acting as the agent causing the most damage by essentially being blown to pieces. He further explains that the bombs that my father built contain steel ball bearings that were typically used to increase the lethality of these bombs. He goes on to testify that pipe bombs can expel the fragments of the container, and in this case, contents at a rate of several thousand feet per second, causing a mass amount of damage. Agent Bettendorf goes on to explain that the largest pipe bomb found in the raid of our home measured at two feet long and four inches wide. And this bomb was filled with several pounds of roofing nails. Bettendorf explains that he had never seen a bomb of this size in his seven years with the ATF. He also states that the bomb, quote, would be devastating. It would cause severe damage in a house or room and the personnel would be at great risk of death or serious bodily injury with all the additional roofing nails and the large amount of gunpowder inside this device. 
When my father cross-examines Agent Bettendorf, he goes on to argue the legality of each bomb under the definition set forth by the ATF. He asks if they weighed the gunpowder, if they actually detonated any of the bombs, and he argues that the fuses could have been broken, causing the bombs to be duds. However, the judge reminds him that because, in fact, he already pled guilty to possessing 26 pipe bombs, that he can no longer argue that they were not bombs. And this appears to be the end of the witnesses. However, before they can proceed to sentencing, my father argues that he was unable to call his own medical professional to speak to his potential for future dangerousness as Dr. Nelson had, to which the judge responds. But I have to tell you, Mr. Turney, that you are partially responsible for this circumstance yourself. Because according to what Dr. Urim says, the reason she can't make a confident diagnosis or assessment is because you were so guarded and controlling with the information you were giving her in the interview. So if you do that again, we're not going to have a third chance. If you're not, I mean this information, remember, whatever is developed because it's for your sentencing and for mitigation, you don't have to share it with me or the government unless you wish to. So I don't see the risk of you being less guarded and less controlling with the information that you share with this next and final interviewer, because if it comes out that it's not information that you wish to share with us, you don't have to. But if I get a second report for information that says I can't make an accurate assessment of Mr. Turney because he was guarded, controlling, and not forthcoming, you know, cooperating in the testing or whatever, we're not going to have a third person try to do it with you. My father says he understands. So his sentencing is rescheduled once again for September 28, 2010. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. 
One thing I really love about Quince, too, is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. And this time, my father subpoenaed his last psychiatrist, Dr. Harrington, my brother John, and myself to speak on his behalf. And Dr. Harrington essentially stated that she was unable to speak to my father's propensity for future violence, stating, quote, There was a whole part of your life that you weren't sharing with me, so I had no idea about the arsenal that was being built up in your home. And so given that, I don't know that I can comment on future violence. And then, I take the stand. But all I'm asked is if my father was violent or if I had seen the explosive devices in the home, both of which I answered no to. There was no cross-examination by the prosecution. My brother John is then called to the stand, and he is asked the same questions, with my father also asking if he has any fear in allowing his children to be around our father, to which my brother John answers no. John is also not cross-examined by the prosecution. My father's last witness is the head of security at his prison, in which he asks if he is in protective custody, and the gentleman confirms the point. After his uneventful examination of his witnesses, my father closes his argument with the following statement. The facts presented show that I had 26 pipe bombs in my home but I was neither physically nor mentally capable of executing a complex scheme depicted in a fictitious story. The government failed to detonate even one of these actual pipe bombs to ensure they actually worked, failed to assemble similar materials for the same, failed to show how old these devices were, and the government's forensic psychologist admitted that she could not guarantee future dangerous acts by me. I have no history of violence. No one was injured no victim of property damage. The government only revealed one fictitious story of many that I wrote in all these stories of this nature. The facts and law support nothing more than 57 months, where if the letter of the law is followed, ignoring public opinion based on the news media or politics, no more than 12 months is necessary or warranted under Title 18. Title 18 sets forth the need for a suitable facility to provide medical care for both my disabling mental and physical condition so that rehabilitation can be provided based on the lengthy history of both. If certainty and finality are to be achieved, then all the foregoing need to be implemented in the interest of justice. If the court has reservation, I have agreed to parole in another state as I am a widower and all I have is adult children left, no home or possessions left. If that would lessen the concern that there might be some violent act in the future upon my release. And the prosecutor, Mr. Pimsner, presented the following final statement Your Honor, what we're dealing with here is a long term premeditated plan committed by the defendant, an individual who had a plan to attack the IBEW Union Hall, 
an individual who did extensive preparation, including conducting video surveillance, taking photographs of the people and license plate numbers of cars that were at the Union Hall. He stockpiled weapons, including a semi-automatic weapon that was capable of firing a hundred rounds of ammunition, which was consistent with his written plan to shoot a hundred rounds at the door at anyone who was moving at the IBEW. He constructed pipe bombs with steel shots and roofing nails for additional fragmentation, which is consistent with someone who was intending to increase the lethality of the pipe bomb and to cause death or serious physical injuries to the intended victim. This represented substantial destructive power. As the agent testified, these bombs, when they explode, the shrapnel will propel at the speed of a bullet. This substantial destructive power was in fact the largest pipe bomb cache in Arizona and caused the evacuation of Mr. Turney's neighborhood for two days. This led to a significant risk of others in the defendant's home, which included his daughter, his son, and his son's child, and risk to the neighboring community, and a risk to the first responders involved in seizing and rendering those safe as bombs. He had also rigged his van full of combustible materials, including propane, gasoline, other chemicals, and flammable materials. The van had a large brick next to the gas pedal. All of this was consistent with his handwritten notes discovered at his residence where he intended to start the van on fire and drive it into the Union Hall. As noted by the FBI lab, the presence of the chemicals in the van, if ignited, would have created a toxic cloud, which would have been both toxic and poisonous for the persons in the immediate area. He also maintained a bulletproof vest and had illegal silencers, which in fact would fit the AK or the semi-automatic rifle with the 100-round double-barrel magazine. He wrote out what his intent was. He drafted letters to the news media and outlined his plans for mass murder and vengeance against the IBEW. He stated that he was going to die as a martyr and kill as many people at the IBEW as he could. He expressed that he had no remorse for family members of those he intended to kill, and that he was going to die with his enemies in a last-stand battle and describe the IBEW as a terrorist organization. He has been described as paranoid and delusional. He was preparing his attack while under the care of psychiatrists, doctors who had no idea what steps he had taken. And the attack was imminent. Just four days after the discovery of the bomb and the van rigged for fire was the next IBEW meeting hall, and there was an X found on the calendar for the 15th of December. It was the only, out of the entire year's calendar, there were maybe only four X's. The other X's had things crossed out. This was an X designating that day. There was nothing else on the calendar that day but an X which is a reasonable inference that his target date was the next IBEW meeting, which was scheduled on December 15th. He demonstrated that he is a continuing threat to the safety of the community. Even after he's in custody, he's being interviewed by the psychiatrist, the federal psychiatrist, up in the prison, he's still talking about his plan to make a martyr out of himself in the summer of 2009. So even after he's detected, arrested, and detained, he is still talking about his plan to make a martyr out of himself. So he is continuing to demonstrate that he is a safety threat to this community. 
Dr. Nelson, who testified, and Dr. Nelson and Dr. Pitt, who wrote a report who are forensic psychologists and have stated that prior and have concluded based on a medical degree of certainty that prior to his arrest, he exhibited a significant number of risk factors for engaging in dangerous behavior. And these are doctors that looked at his extensive records, listened to his tape recordings, read his writings, and read police reports and witness statements, and they made a conclusion that his history of making threats, his paranoid behavior, his evidence of long-term anger and grudges that he holds against others, including the IBEW, that his hostility and his anger has increased since he's been incarcerated. And as a result, he has demonstrated that since his arrest, and they have listened to all the jail calls that have been recorded, that he has demonstrated more hostility and that the risk for engaging in future violent or dangerous behavior has in fact increased. This opinion was confirmed by Dr. Carlos Jones, a doctor who concluded an independent examination which included extensive objective testing on the defendant. Dr. Jones concluded that his test scores suggest that Michael Turney represents a moderate level of risk when conducting a violent risk assessment. However, his final conclusion is that when you couple the test results with Mr. Turney's paranoid ideation, his persecutory delusions, his obsessive ruminations, which are all the primary features of his mental illness, which by their nature are difficult to treat, that this increases his violent potential. Dr. Jones also confirms Dr. Pitt and Dr. Nelson's conclusions that Mr. Turney's violence potential is at a high-risk range. Starting with the nature and circumstances of the offense, this was more than just a possession of an explosive device, a simple possession of a pipe bomb. The number of bombs, the way they were constructed to cause substantial harm based on the quantity, the size, the use of additional fragmentation to increase the lethality of the weapons is significant in this case. His stated intent was to cause mass murder and vengeance. The nature and circumstances of this offense, coupled with the defendant's clear intent to commit mass murder, takes this case outside of the ordinary possession of unregistered devices cases, and accordingly, a significant sentence is warranted. Even if you look at the factor to ensure that the defendant receives adequate medical mental health treatment and extend it in an above-guideline sentence would provide for an extended time for Mr. Turney to receive mental health treatment in connection with this matter. And then most significantly, we look at what is just and what is needed to provide a deterrence. And most significantly, to protect the public. And the government submits that a sentence of 120 months is appropriate. One, to provide deterrence, but most importantly, to protect the public. He was plotting his acts of mass murder and vengeance while under a doctor's care. He took substantial steps to complete this act without their knowledge. His significant mental health issues, which did not abate during his treatment, add to the risk to this community. As evidenced by two forensic psychiatric reports, the defendant's potential to commit future violence is high. A significant sentence is the only way to adequately protect the public from the defendant. Accordingly, we are requesting a 120-month sentence. Thank you. To which the Honorable Judge Susan Bolton replied, 
The court finds that the president's report is accurate and correctly calculates the offense level in criminal history category at 23. The guidelines suggest that the defendant should be sentenced between 46 and 57 months in prison. The government has requested that the court impose a sentence greater than what the guidelines have suggested for the reasons just outlined by Mr. Pimsner. After considering the guidelines recommendation, the court must then consider the 18 U.S.C. Section 3553 factors and impose a sentence that is sufficient but not greater than necessary to comply with the sentencing purposes. I'm supposed to consider first the nature and circumstances of the offense and the history characteristics of the defendant. With respect to the nature and circumstances of the offense, I agree with the government that this offense involved much more than the mere possession of pipe bombs. It involved this possession, coupled with substantial written materials, that while Mr. Turney characterizes them as fiction, the court does not accept that characterization. The list that was prepared that outlined in numerical order the things to be done were consistent with the materials that were found in Mr. Turney's house consistent with the semi-automatic rifle that held 100 rounds, consistent with the van loaded with explosive material. The pipe bombs were assembled. They had devices on them to make them operable and explosive. And the one that was demonstrated here on August 13th, I believe was characterized by the ATF agent as the largest pipe bomb he had ever seen, and one that was filled with materials that appeared to be designed for maximum destructive force. The history and characteristics of the defendant include that the defendant doesn't have any prior criminal history, and that is a matter of significance. But the history and characteristics of the defendant also show that the defendant has been diagnosed as having paranoid personality disorder for many, many years. The defendant was under active, intensive, three times a week, I believe I heard, and sometimes two psychiatric treatment for 10 years without any indication that any progress was made. If anything, it appears that the defendant's obsessions and paranoia got worse and worse instead of better. The sentence must reflect the seriousness of the offense. And I believe that I have already addressed with respect to the pipe bombs, the explosives, the van loaded with explosive material, and the plan that existed both in the writings and in the list. But even if it were the case, Mr. Turney, that you didn't intend to carry through with this plan, the circumstances. The seriousness of the offense also includes the circumstances that existed in your home, which created an enormous danger not only to the people that resided in your home, but to your entire neighborhood. Even without engaging in the plan and putting into motion the things that your writing said you intended to do, your home I would characterize as a bomb itself with all these explosive devices in your bedroom, in your garage, and in your backyard, which is another one of the factors to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant. You created an enormous danger to the public just by having these things in the condition that they were in your home, not to mention what your writings say you intended to do with them. The court must impose a sentence that deters you from doing this in the future and also deters others who might consider doing, engaging in this type of behavior, assembling this type of destructive device, and having them in a neighborhood where they endangered the public. It is true that the defendant should also be provided with the needed medical care or other correctional treatment. However, with respect to psychiatric treatment, 
if history is a predictor of the future, psychiatric treatment has been largely ineffective in changing your obsessions and your paranoia. They appear with the treatment that you have received, which has been extensive, to not have improved at all, and arguably gotten significantly worse. Under these factors and consideration of the substantial written materials that I have already detailed, the court agrees with the government in that a sentence of 10 years in prison, the statutory maximum, is appropriate in this circumstance and is the only sentence that will be effective to protect the public from your engaging in this behavior in the future. I'm appalled by the danger that you created for your own family. They were unaware of what they were living with, something that could have resulted in their death or, at a minimum, serious injury. And I'm appalled that you would have this level of explosive material in the neighborhood where you lived, because none of these people were the targets of any of your concern. None of these people have done things to you that you think were deserving of being placed in this kind of jeopardy. Therefore, pursuant with the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, it is the judgment of the court that the defendant be committed to the custody of the Bureau of Prisons for 120 months. The court recommends that the defendant participate in a Bureau of Prisons mental health treatment program. The defendant is ordered to pay a $100 special assessment. The court finds that the defendant does not have the ability to pay a fine and orders the fine waived. When the defendant is released from custody, he will be on supervised release for three years. During this time, Mr. Turney, you are ordered to comply with all standard conditions of supervision adopted by the court in General Order 0536. Of particular importance, it is that you not commit another federal, state, or local crime during the time of supervision and abstain from the use of illicit substances. The following additional conditions also apply. You are ordered to submit your person, property, residence, office, or vehicle to a search conducted by your probation officer at a reasonable time and in a reasonable manner. You are ordered to provide your probation officer with access to any requested financial information. You are prohibited from making major purchases, incurring new financial obligations, or entering into any financial contracts without the prior approval of your probation officer. You are ordered to participate in a mental health program as directed by your probation officer, which may include taking prescribed medication and contribute to the cost of treatment in an amount determined by your probation officer. You are prohibited from owning, maintaining, or using any firearm. Mr. Turney, had you gone to trial and been convicted, after a trial, you would have had the right to appeal from the orders of court to have a lawyer represent you. If you could not afford a lawyer, a lawyer would have been appointed and the necessary records and transcripts provided at government expense. You do not have these appeal rights. You waived them in your plea agreement so long as you were sentenced in accordance with that agreement. There were no agreements with respect to your sentencing in your plea agreement, so in my view I have sentenced you in accordance with your agreement, and in my view you have waived all rights to appeal. But you should give this some thought. You should consult your advisory council about it. And after doing that, you think you have the right to appeal and you want to exercise that right, you may do so by filing a notice of appeal within 14 days of today, or any rights you think you may have to appeal will be waived. Do you understand? And my father responds, yes, ma'am. 
She then asks, Mr. Turney, is there anything else you'd like to add? In which my father asks for the transcript of this very hearing. And he goes on to say, because I already have a notice to file appeal prepared. And my father goes on to ask the judge, would you like it now or should I mail it in? And Judge Susan Bolton responds that would be fine, but also states, I realize you are filing a notice of appeal. I don't think you have a right to appeal. To which my father responds, Unlike the counsel, Your Honor, I have pretty much predicted what you would do, and I have been correct on every one. So I have just anticipated that because it's difficult to do things at the Corrections Corporation of America. The judge then thanks my father and concludes the proceedings. When my father was sentenced to 120 months, or 10 years in prison, I broke, right in that courtroom. When Judge Bolton announced the sentence, my father immediately looked back at me, and tears began streaming down my face. I tried to be strong, but I couldn't. I continued to cry all through the sentencing. When they went to take him back, I rushed to the front of the courtroom benches, trying to touch him, hug him, anything. But before I could, they rushed him away. But he looked back at me and mouthed the words, It's okay. I left the courtroom sobbing. After two years of filing motions, wrangling experts and witnesses, it felt like it was all for nothing. And I was absolutely devastated. I felt as if I had really let him down. I felt as if there was something more I could have done to help him. I reflected back on all of the times that I ignored him or I didn't want to file the motions where I was just too tired to help him. And it really felt like my fault. But before my father was sent back to Florence to serve this sentence, Detective Summershoe and Anderson tried one last time to get that formal interview that my father insists that he has never refused. That report reads... Prior to the hearing, we had contacted U.S. Marshal Joseph Ferranda and told him that we wished to briefly speak with Mike after his sentencing. He said that he would arrange this. U.S. Marshal Ferranda was present during our entire contact with Mike. After sentencing, Mike was removed from the courtroom and taken to another room where he was placed in a holding cell. He was shackled and wearing an orange prison inmate uniform. We spoke to Turney through the bars of the cell. And the transcript of that conversation reads, Mike, um, we're still here about Alyssa. That's what we're here for. So you said before that you talked to us. We are offering that, you know, to still find Alyssa and to find what happened to her. The only two people in the world actively pursuing your daughter's disappearance are standing before you right now asking for your cooperation. You guys are so full of shit. You aren't looking for jack shit. So, Mike, do you want to sit down for an interview and talk to us about Alyssa and about this knowledge you have about her disappearance? You've gotten everything I had about Alyssa's disappearance. No, we haven't, Mike. Oh, yes, you have. We have no statement from you, Mike. You've yet to sit down and talk with us. Really? Is that why you won't produce the tape recordings that said exactly what I said to your people? At least a dozen times. Where's the tape recordings that prove my innocence? You guys destroy them yet? Go away. So, Mike, I guess you don't want to talk to us then. There's nothing to talk about except the fact that you're a bunch of dirty cops. Mike, th there's no media here, no audience. It's just us. 
about your daughter is missing. My daughter is missing because you assholes didn't do your job. There is no one here looking for you. There's no other attention here. We want to know about Alyssa. You're the last person to see her. Sit down with us and talk with us. Then fine. Why don't you go find Alyssa? Because you're the last person to see her. You said you know that she's been murdered and you say you know where her body is at. You've held on to that since 2003 and you never mentioned it to us. I know where her body's at? That's what you wrote, Mike. That's what you told people, so... This conversation is over with because you... Now you're putting stuff in there that doesn't exist. Go away. Desert Center, California. There's nothing more to say. Goodbye. This conversation... Okay, so you're not willing to help us then. You understand, Miranda? Go read it. Okay. You're a bunch of filthy cops. Now get out of here. Good luck, Mike. We'll keep looking for your daughter. If you change your mind, you know where to contact us. Yeah, right. You keep looking, morons. All you did was take away the one person who was looking for her. Creeps. Like we read over in the court proceedings, my father attempted to appeal this sentence despite not having the legal ground to do so, and was ultimately denied by the end of 2011. At this point, the police state that my father was still the only person of interest in Alyssa's case, and that they would continue the investigation. And in fact, while the trial was going on, a lot was going on behind the scenes of the investigation into the disappearance of Alyssa. Next time on Voices for Justice. So today on Voices for Justice, I actually have Stephen Strom, which is Alyssa's biological father. Um, Hi, Steve. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. So how old was Alyssa the last time you saw her? Two and a half years old. Two and a half. Okay. That's something that I'd always, um, I've been a little fuzzy on, so that's good to know. No, she she was what I call taken from me at two and a half. That was the last time I saw my daughter. I want to talk about my hesitation in having you on, which we've talked about. You know, um, we had a phone call in December of 2019 where you asked to come on the podcast. You said, I want to come and I want to tell my story. And I said, okay, we can do that. But I want to talk about it all, Um, which I was specifically referring to, you know, you brought it up that that my dad always said that you were a violent man, Mm -hmm. that you weren't a good guy. You know, I heard these stories of... The biggest thing was is that we knew she was missing, Bar, uh, Karen and I did, my wife and I, and we knew she was missing. We knew he probably had something to do with it, but we didn't know what, when, where. We didn't know any of that stuff until we finally met some little girl by the name of Sarah. <laughs> Sorry. Don't be. It's okay. Sarah Turney, and she's the one that helped us with this helped us get through it because she has been the backbone to everything and I'm sorry I'm crying but don't be sorry it's okay 